Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe your name is powerful because you are alive and you are still at work in our world. And that you're still meeting people and you're still embracing people and healing people and helping people. And God, we've gathered together today to be with you, to sense your presence, to lean in close and reach out for you and to have heaven reach back to us. So God, I ask today that these will be your words, that we will encounter you. We won't walk away and say great message, but we'll say we had a great encounter with a loving and gracious God. Lord, we ask that you will move me out of the way, that I will decrease and you will increase, that your name will be high and lifted up and celebrated here today. Amen. I believe that churches disproportionately attract toxic, narcissistic leaders. I think even more so than our companies or our businesses, churches attract narcissists. Now, while there's always been narcissists in the world, Chuck DeGroote, a professor at Western Theological Seminary and a professional counselor, says narcissism in the American pulpit is at epidemic levels. It's like, if you want to find a narcissist, just go to church and look at who's on the stage. Probably a narcissist. Don't ask my wife whether or not that's true about me. Um, Carrie Newhoff, an author and podcaster who has a podcast about leadership and pastoring, he has tens of millions of downloads. He says the number one question he's asked when he meets pastors at conferences or sits down for lunch is, they all ask him the same thing, how do I get a big platform like you? How do I get famous like you? Craig Groeschel, the lead pastor of Life Church, who boasts 85,000 members across 30 church campuses in the U.S., said behind every megachurch pastor, and he included himself in this, is unresolved issues with the father figure that the pastor is trying to mask with spiritual success. So in other words, our pastors are a mess. And some of our most popular, most charismatic pastors leading the biggest ministries are even a bigger mess. Church has become a place that can stoke our Tony Stark-sized egos, medicate, medicate our ungrieved relational losses, and provide the narcissist in us with lights and a stage. And I think our churches are attracting the wrong kinds of leaders because we're doing church the wrong way. If we want to attract humble, sacrificial leaders, leaders like Jesus, I think the way we do church has to change. Um, when I started church planting, they, they really try to get you into church planting and attract church planters by sending you to these big conferences where they have big name speakers and huge lights and smoke shows, you know, and they've got big bands there and they've got lights and stages and crowds and they're like, you could be the next big church planter. You need to sign up for this and do this too. And what happens is most church planters leave disappointed when their results seem dim in comparison. See, many people see the church as a way to get fame. And they're like, church is just another avenue for me to try to find what I really want, which is fame. Our culture is obsessed with celebrityism and fame. And that has invaded the church all the way up to the pastor and the leaders in churches. 75% of kids under 15 in a recent survey said they want to be a YouTube personality when they grow up. And what I find is most pastors over 40 dream of being a megachurch pastor when they grow up. The problem is that when fame is the goal, 
people become stepping stones that we will step on or even smash in order to get to what is next and what is better instead of seeing people as image bearers to be served and loved. And if I went around the room today, we could just make this a counseling session and ask you like, so tell me a story of a power hungry pastor or priest or minister who controlled and manipulated people to elevate themselves. All of us would have stories. Whether you've been in church a long time or whether you've been in a short time, you've heard news stories or you've had family and you've seen pastors who abuse people instead of serve people. And off the top of my head, I can name 10 pastors who either were uh, let go of their ministry because of sex stuff or alcohol or becoming atheists or becoming aggressive bullies. And I think Jesus has a very different vision for the church. And if you're watching today or you're here and you're like, I'm just checking out Christianity, but man, I've heard some terrible stories about Christian leaders and ministers. Don't judge Jesus on the basis of what some men and women have done in his name. He's too good to be dismissed so easily. I think Jesus feels the same disgust we feel over those leaders when it's revealed that they had another illicit affair or they abused someone underage or they took advantage of power to manipulate people and build a name for themselves. I think the disgust that we feel is a disgust that Jesus feels even deeper because he had a vision for church that is good and beautiful and it's been ruined and sullied. I think church has to change. The way we do church is attractive to narcissists because they can endlessly pursue self-promotion all in the name of serving God. And this happens at all levels of church, but I think it especially happens for pastors and staff and ministers and leaders in churches. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been exploring a core conviction of mine that the way we do church in North America has to change or churches will continue to close. If we don't change it, church is going to go away. I think there will be churches that stay and they will be future churches because they recognize that there are mindsets and principles in the early church that we need to adapt and carry out today. If the church is going to survive and thrive in this critical moment in history, this is a turning point in American Christianity. We have to change the way we do church. We have to reclaim these mindsets of the early church, a church that I believe better captured the vision of what Jesus wanted the church to be about. So we've been exploring these mindsets in the book of Acts. We only have a few more left in this series. Today, though, we pick up in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, in the verse 7 verses, it says this, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation who are full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Um, so what's happening here in this passage? 
This passage is capturing an early church conflict, and it's fascinating because it's progressive Jews complaining that traditional Jews were treating them as outsiders in the first church. One of the first conflicts in the early church was giving priority to, to traditionalists and making progressives feel like outsiders. Now, they solved this by creating a new position um, called deacon to serve everyone equally. And so just so you understand what's happening here, Hellenistic Jews were Jews who lived throughout the Roman Empire and usually adopted Greek culture, Greek dress, Greek customs, but they continued to worship the one true God of Israel. They would read the Bible out of the Greek translation. They would speak Greek as their first language rather than Hebrew. And this was to be, or this was a counter or an alternative to the Hebraic Jews who thought the Hellenists were too liberal and the, the he, Hebraic Jews would stay in the original land of Israel on their historic land that their families had stayed on for generations. They would speak Hebrew first. They rejected Greek culture and custom. They were like, you're getting too much like the Gentiles if you did those things. And they read from the Hebrew translation or the Hebrew copy of the Old Testament. Now, essentially what was going on was the Hebraic Jews thought the Hellenists were too liberal too much like the culture, and the Hellenists thought the Hebraic Jews were too conservative, too legalistic. Of course, we don't have anything like that going on today in our churches, right? Like, there's nothing happening like that. We've got over that a long time ago. Um, people from both parties, though, became students of Jesus's way of life, and here they are in Jerusalem living side by side, working together in the church, and remember, the church was providing for the Hellenistic Jews that had traveled to Jerusalem at Pentecost had been introduced to the ways of Jesus and they said we're going to stick around and figure out what this life is about and the church said okay we're going to find places for you to live and we're going to provide you with food and so they were being provided with things by the church while they stayed there and learned about Jesus's way of life before being sent back home so there was a report that when the food was being given out they were making a preferential treatment to the Hebraic Jews who had traveled from other parts of Israel instead of Hellenistic Jews who had traveled from other parts of the Roman Empire. They said, oh, we're going to make sure the conservatives get lots of food, and if there's none left over, sorry, liberals, you, like, you don't really belong here anyways. That's essentially the, what's happening. Um, that's the issue that the apostles are being called in to solve. Now, whether or not this is true or just a rumor, Luke, who writes his account, doesn't tell us. Instead, he tells us what they did about it. He doesn't spend a lot of time being like, well, it was just perceived, but it didn't happen. We don't know. It could have really been happening. Um, it was definitely a real tension point in Jewish culture at this time. The apostles, though, they call the entire church together in Jerusalem, and they do something interesting. They don't side with one side or the other. They don't be like, well... They have every right to exclude you because your theology is bad, you know? They don't say that. They say they don't accuse the church of having a secret soup Nazi who's like, no soup for you, Hellenists, none for you. They don't take charge and get to the bottom of it. You know, like, I know some pastors who would be like, there's a conflict, I gotta get in there and get in the weeds and find out the truth and grill people. They delegate the responsibility so no one gets left out in the future. They don't say, this didn't really happen, or they didn't say, you did this. What they said is, let's just make, solve the problem so it doesn't happen again in the future. They don't do this by taking charge and taking control, but by delegating it to someone else. Now, this may seem simple and even forgettable. You're like, why are we even reading this? This is so boring. They solved a simple disagreement in the early church. But I think this is an important mindset of the early church that must be a mindset of the future church. Future churches will be led by leaders that don't have to control everything. 
Notice they didn't say, well, we're just going to take it over so that it's done right in the future. We'll just make sure it's done right. Now everything has to go through us. They didn't try to do everything. I believe future churches won't have a CEO who tries to run the entire church like a business at the helm and has to be involved in everything, has to be at everything. As a young minister, I had an older pastor mentoring me, and it was very helpful. It, it was very good. But there were some things that he taught me or told me that I had to unlearn later because they weren't healthy leadership things. One of the things he told me many, many times was the old leadership adage, everything rises and falls on leadership. Now, chasing the false narrative of this message, I was at the church constantly. Every moment I could, I worked relentlessly. I endlessly pursued growing and expanding my ministry. And that sounds, <laughs> excuse me, that sounds really good, but I was overextended, I was exhausted, and I was spiritually empty as a result. My relationships were garbage, but I was just passionately pursuing because everything depended on my leadership, right? It all depended on me. See, I think everything does rise and fall on leadership, just not human leadership. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. That means I don't have to work myself to death because everything doesn't depend on me. Believing that everything rises and falls on my leadership makes me arrogant, it makes me anxious, and it makes me overworked. Because I've got, like, i got to do it. It's all on me. If it goes well, that's me. If it goes poorly, that's me. It's all me. The focus is all wrong. Pastors aren't head of the church. Jesus is. I'm not head of Horizon. Jesus is. Too often, pastors say Jesus is at the head, but insist that Jesus only speaks through themselves and essentially contradict what they just said. See, Jesus can speak through any of us because we all have the Holy Spirit if we're followers of Jesus, and I think he will if we let him. Future churches will have to change the expectation that Western culture has placed on pastors because it is neither realistic nor healthy for them or the church. See, too many churches think that pastors and the staff are paid to do the ministry so that we can go out and do our secular jobs. Like, we do our secular jobs to get money so we pay ministers, and they do the spiritual jobs. The clergy-laity divide is a false narrative, and it's got to go away in the future church. We've got to see us see our, all of ourselves as ministers in our culture and communities and families and neighborhoods. See, we all have the same job to live and love like Jesus wherever we go and to expand his kingdom by setting things right like he will as he rules and reigns as king and introducing more people into his way of life because it's the best way to live. Now, some of us will do that at schools. Some of us will do that at home offices. Some of us will do that at prisons. And some of us will do that at food pantries. Some of us will do that at antique shops. Some of us will do that at art centers or construction shops or at um, hairstylists. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had no mercy, but now you've received mercy. Everywhere you go, you're a holy priest. You're a minister. Future churches will mobilize the people of the church, not just the pastors or the staff of the church. Too much of the church centers around the pastor's gifts instead of around the church members' gifts. Instead of elevating charismatic 
talented speakers, I think future churches will mobilize ordinary people empowered by the Holy Spirit in their everyday lives to do the work of Jesus. In the words of Leslie Newbegin, he says, Believers participate in Christ's priesthood, not within the walls of the church, but in the daily business of the world. As you walk and live and love like Jesus, you do the ministry of Christ in the world. So many times in the Western American church, we have centered our Christianity around a stage. And as pastors, we like being at the center. Our church buildings are centered around a stage where we stand and people sit out there and focus on us and look at us and make us the center. What seems to be most important, we're human. We enjoy feeling important and respected and needed. And I think the way we do church has been embraced by pastors because it feeds a deep narcissistic desire to look important, to feel needed, and to be revered. You know, I'm like, oh yeah, that feels good. I like, I like that. But future churches will need pastors who aren't afraid to look foolish, not always put together. Who aren't afraid to not be in control and let other people do something. As one wise mentor used to tell me, if you have someone who can do something 70% as well as you, they should do it 100% of the time. You should never do it. And I'm like, yeah, but I could do it 100% right. And he's like, if they can do it 70%, you should never touch it again. And I'm like, no, 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 I can't trust them. Lord, if they, what about that 30%? He's like, if you do that, you will always choke growth in your church. We need people who aren't afraid to say, I'm broken or I'm messy or I was wrong. We need leaders who aren't afraid to be corrected or challenged or called to repentance. Future churches will have pastors who resist the call to be a celebrity or to always make a big impact because small things don't matter. They will relish quiet moments where other people have the spotlight, where the Holy Spirit shows up and speaks out in ordinary people. They will seek the shadows, and as much as they can, they will avoid the stage instead of chasing it. See, I think future churches will honor and elevate leaders with character, not charismatic communication gifts. For too long in North America, a good pastor has been defined by how well he speaks instead of how well he loves and behaves. The future church belongs to the congregates, not the charismatic, talented communicator in the stage. Or in the words of Eugene Peterson, pastor, seminary professor, and a translator of the message, he said, pastors must resist the pull to be in the middle of the action. That's not their job. Their job is on the sidelines, cheering for the church who are on the front lines. Notice the apostles' solution was not to take over the distribution of food, but rather to find faithful people to take it over for them. My tendency when something is broken is, okay, I'll just take it over and make sure it's done right. I can't trust people, so I'll just do it all. Future church leaders won't make that mistake. To have help, we must release control. For me to have help, I must release control. There are thousands of overworked and exhausted pastors in our country because they can't imagine letting anything out of their control. Really, it's an issue of lack of faith. Future churches will recognize that the more a pastor controls, the more he chokes the ability of his church to grow. Future churches will be led by leaders who don't have to be at every meeting, don't have to control every outcome, don't have to be in charge of everything. Controlling leaders will drive their churches right into the ground. 
Now notice at the end of all this, what happened as a result of what they did. In verse 7, it says, So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now that might seem like a strange detail, but I think that the way the apostles handled this situation impressed the Jewish religious leaders because that was not how they usually saw things handled. The end result was the church grew and many priests became students of Jesus. The religious people were convinced this thing was true by seeing the way the leaders of the Christian movement rejected self-promotion and control. They were like, oh, if that had happened in our group, the Pharisees would have jumped in there and just taken control of that thing. Instead, they moved control away. And something about that appealed to them. What convinced many of the religious priests to convert to Christianity was the way they didn't show favoritism, the way they didn't seek control. They didn't exploit people to become celebrities or influencers to make sure that they had everything under their thumb. I can't help but think that we have a lot of religious people who would be greatly impressed by a church that did not show favoritism and did not try, their leaders did not try to control everything. What a refreshing thing that might be for people who are burned out on religion and are looking for something real. So, I can't make Horizon a future church. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about future churches, what a church has to do to survive and thrive into the future. We've got a few more weeks to talk about it, but I can't do it. Um, if you expect me to be like, man, Alex, this future church, this sounds like great stuff. Get it done. Make it happen. You're going to be sadly disappointed. Because the, future, because the church of the future will see the pastor get out of the way and find ways to help people see that they are pastors everywhere they go. Notice the important qualifications that the, uh, the apostles looked for in the first deacons. These were people of wisdom and people who were full of faith and full of the Spirit. These were people who had lots of trust in Jesus and exemplified his presence and power. They were people who believed that this Jesus way of life really works. And they projected peace and joy because they had spent time with Jesus. They were emulating Jesus' way of life. And they were starting to look like him as a result. Now the good news about these qualifications is, these aren't very hard qualifications to have. The bar is pretty low. You don't need lots of natural talent. You don't need lots of training or education. You just need to be crazy in love with Jesus, spending time with him and starting to look like him. Now I'm not very good at getting out of the way. Um, I really like keeping everything together. Uh, some of that's my personality. Some of that's probably like um, some of my childhood. But when I started Horizon, some of those things were good. Because when you start with nothing, you have to hold the thing together. As one person described it as, you're driving a car down a windy road and the roads are slick from rain, but you're also building the car at the same time you're driving down the dangerous windy mountain road with cliffs on the side. I'm like, yeah, that's a good explanation of church planting. And if at any point I had said, hey, take the wheel, there wasn't people there to take the wheel right? Like, it was me. I had to be building it and have a hand on the wheel at the same time. And um, when you start a church, you have to be a little bit insane enough to think miracles can happen, and you have to be willing to do what needs to be done to get things done. But that drive that's good in the beginning can become a bottleneck on our ability to be a future church as our church ages. See, everything can't depend on me, 
And honestly, if I'm just going to be honest, after 2020, I feel like my capacity is lower than it's ever been. I only have so much to give. And when I keep pushing myself and pushing myself, I produce worse and worse results. And often I've seen churches that demand so much of the people sitting in the seats that I never want to ask anything of people. Like I go in the complete opposite direction. But that's sinful and selfish of me to do that because I'm really not protecting your time. I'm really protecting myself against the real fear of rejection. The apostles were like, look, this is what we do. We know what we do. We can't do everything. We're going to do what we're supposed to do, and we're going to find people to do what we can't. Or in other words, I believe future church leaders will do what only they can do with as much passion and excellence as they can, and they'll give everything else away. And I'm not very good at giving stuff away. I like keeping it under control, and I know what's going to happen, and I know how it's going to go. But I'm going to try to get better at that, because otherwise Horizon won't be a future church. Horizon won't have a future. Everyone shouldn't do everything, but everyone can do something. The biggest barrier preventing Horizon from being a future church is me. I'm not being grandiose there. That's just true. If I can't step aside and relinquish control and allow other people to run with things, Horizon won't be a future church. It won't have a future so this message is both a confession and an invitation. I need your help. If we're going to be a future church, if Horizon, if you believe like I do, that Horizon is the type of church that our community and country needs for the future, I need your help. Horizon will never be a future church as long as I think of this as my church instead of his church, or as long as I think of this as my church instead of your church. Will you help me? Let's future-proof horizon. Lord Jesus, thank you for the challenge of the early church, a church that just simply focused on the things you were about and didn't get so distracted with so many of the things that our modern churches do. God, forgive me for so often bringing up my, my workaholicism that wants to do everything and accomplish everything and leave people by the sidelines just to accomplish tasks. God, forgive me for so often wanting to be in control of things so that they go a certain way like I imagined instead of letting people be creative and do things in new and interesting ways because I think that's how the Spirit wants to work through all of us, not just through one person up front or a few people up front. God, will you help Horizon to become a future church? Will you help me to say no to some things, to give people the space to say yes to some things? And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.